Israeli military forces raided Gaza's Al-Shifa hospital, including the emergency department, the surgical department, and the maternity ward. People all over the world this Friday, November 17th, are going on strike. They're demonstrating. They're going to shut it down in solidarity with the people of Palestine. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we're talking with Leanne Sima Fulihan, a popular educator organizer, the education director at the People's Forum, and an editor at 1804 Books. Welcome to the show, Leanne. Thank you for having me. All around the world on Friday, people are going to be in the streets. Here in New York City, where we are, in Washington, D.C., in Atlanta, in San Francisco, in L.A., all over the Middle East. The students in occupied Palestine have called for a day of walkout. This is going to be massive. This is going to be something unlike anything the world has experienced, at least in the recent history. But it takes place in the context of this horror. The Israeli government has seized the hospital. Remember, a couple of weeks ago, they were saying, oh, we didn't bomb that hospital. That was a rocket from Islamic Jihad or something like that, some nonsense. They were bombing hospitals. Now they've seized the hospital. Patients are running for their lives. The Biden administration seems not to have a problem with it. As a matter of fact, we're going to have a clip which we'll play in a little while from the Pentagon saying, oh, no, it's fine to take over hospitals and crush hospitals because Hamas was using it as a, a military operation center. We're going to talk about whether that's true or not. But anyway, this is the context. A war against civilians, 11,000 plus, maybe 12,000. We don't really know. But the Israeli government is deliberately deliberately killing civilians. It's not because they happen to be in harm's way. When you do this, you know you're killing civilians. Absolutely. And you can see it echoed uh, from the statements that the Israeli military officials are saying, from people who are famous, popular culture icons, figures. People know what's happening, both inside Israel and outside, people who are with Israel and people who are against Israel's genocide. Everyone knows what's happening. It's very clear. This is a massacre of civilians. It is an outright move to actually try to move the Palestinian people out of sections of Gaza and perhaps all of Gaza, and there's no denying it. No matter how many times Biden gets on national television and tries to just say statements to the contrary, the visible proof is right in front of the whole world. And the whole world is changing. I mean, there are massive protests. I talked in the beginning that this Friday there's going to be this massive global day of protest. On November 4th, you were there. You were one of the speakers in Washington, D.C., a demonstration of over 300,000 people. One thing that was very noteworthy was people were chanting, and by the way, this was the biggest Palestine demo support for Palestine in U.S. history. People were chanting, cease fire now, cease fire now. A couple days ago in Washington, D.C., well, actually, yesterday in Washington, D.C., a pro-Israeli demonstration was taking not far away from where we were on November 4th. And when one of the speakers, Van Jones, who shouldn't have been there in the first place, but when he said, well, I'm against Hamas rockets, but I'm also against the bombing of the people of Gaza, the whole crowd erupted with the chant, no ceasefire. So you have on one side people chanting ceasefire now and the pro-Israeli crowd chanting no ceasefire. So that's not just a pro-Israeli crowd. That's a pro-war demonstration backed by U.S. Congress people, backed by the White House, obviously supported by the mainstream media. The New York Times was advertising it the day ahead of time. On November 4th for the pro-Palestine demo, the New York Times didn't even send a reporter they did not even send a reporter. There was coverage, but it wasn't because they had a reporter there. Anyway, we have this divergence in the world. People who actually want peace, but also want justice, meaning an end to occupation. And then the forces that are really now have identified themselves as basically 
The war party. Go ahead. No, exactly. It's a moment of reckoning for the Israeli project. So long it's survived by creating this kind of public consent, especially among the U.S. population and other Western countries, by saying that Israel is in a defensive position against these terrorist forces or the surrounding Arab states. But now it's it's impossible to continue that narrative. It's exactly like what you said, comparing the two rallies is a very clear example. You have people who are calling for a ceasefire. That's the first step. I mean, that's just a basic human principle. Stop bombing civilians. And on the other side, you have people who say, stand with Israel, kill civilians, no ceasefire. I mean, it's a complete exposure of what's actually behind the Israeli project. There's no more denying now that in order for Israel to actually achieve what its goal is, is the ethnic cleansing, the genocide of the Palestinian people, something that it has been trying to carry out for over 75 years. So here we had a couple of weeks ago, Israel was saying, look, we didn't bomb the hospital, the other hospital, not Al-Shifa. That was an errant rocket that was fired by one of the Palestinian resistance groups. And so that became the story in the media. Did Israel do it or not do it? Rather than the obvious story, which is Israel was doing it to hospitals all over Gaza. And now that it's clear that Israel has deliberately seized Al-Shifa Hospital, and the patients are literally, one, dying because there's no anesthesia, there's no electricity, there's no water. You see these horrific pictures of doctors tending to people and making decisions about who's going to be treated based on who's more likely to live. In other words, complete triage. But now it's open. Now the Pentagon says, yeah, they're there. They took it over, but it's legitimate. I want to play a a clip. This is from Sabrina Singh, Pentagon spokeswoman. She's telling the, the reporters at the Pentagon press briefing the other day, yeah, this is cool. This is great because Hamas is using it for a command and control And then listen to how she deals with the reporters who are, well, to put it mildly, somewhat skeptical. Let's listen. You know, we do have information that Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad uses some hospitals in the Gaza Strip, including the Al-Shifa Hospital, um, as a way to conceal and support their military operations and hold hostages. They have tunnels underneath these hospitals. And so Hamas and PIJ members operate a command and control node from Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza City. They have weapons stored there. This intelligence assessment is gathered based on information provided by Israel? Sorry, the this the, what I just read out? Yeah. That's from our intelligence community. So uh, did you have any assets inside uh, Gaza? Intelligence we have no community? assets or okay, so boots on the ground in Gaza. So there's no uh, gathering on the ground about this? That's uh, right. So you yeah. have no one entering the hospitals? to verify this information, right? We have no one, we have no boots on the ground in Gaza. The question is, mm-hmm. how was that assessment, uh, you, you know, how did you conclude that assessment based on information received from your Israeli counterparts? Well, I'm not going to get into more specifics on how our intelligence is collected. Confirming that um, you have no assets on the ground. They have no boots on the ground, Liam, but they know for sure that Hamas is there. I mean, this is obviously proof that America is basically an extension of Israeli propaganda. We've seen this so many times. I mean, you referenced the bombing of the Al-Ahli hospital a week ago, a few weeks ago. Actually, time is such a blur now with the rapidity of the changing situation. And Biden gets on television and says Israel did not bomb the hospital. He had to go on national television from the highest position of the White House and say to the American public to try to appease the public, to try to put out the Israeli talking points that Israel did not bomb the hospital. And you see here again, this reminds me a lot of the whole myth around weapons of mass destruction, where the whole American public was supposed to just believe the intelligence with no proof. And it's really just a pretext for more massacre, for more war, for imperialist gains that do not actually align with the narrative that the U.S. wants people to think. Israel is defending itself. They're protecting human lives. That Hamas is the main aggressor here. Yeah, and and very frankly, I mean, most people are not going to watch Sabrina Singh's obvious inability to prove her point. Right. They're going to see the headlines. Al-Shifa hospital has been seized by Israelis. Good. Why? Because Hamas is using it as a military command post. How do we know? 
because we're reading headlines in the Washington Post. We're reading headlines in the New York Times. We're watching CNN. We're watching the corporate-owned media that's, you know, completely connected to the U.S. military industrial complex, always echoes Israeli talking points. So, yeah, on our show, on the socialist program here on Breakthrough News, you can listen to Sabrina Singh, obviously unable to actually document why this intelligence is true, but it won't matter. It won't matter because the masses of people are actually having their opinions formed by the headlines. The only thing that's new, really, and I think it's fundamentally new, is the mass grassroots protest movement is so vast, it's so everywhere, it's unlike anything that's ever existed in the United States, that the media can't actually ignore it. College campuses are trying to repress students, they're expelling students, they're suspending students, but they can't stop the students. And right now we see that this movement demanding one, a ceasefire, but of course a ceasefire is a way to stop the immediate bloodshed, but not it's not the, the solution. The solution is to end the illegal occupation of Palestinian lands. I mean, this sort of measurable mass movement of protest and opposition, it can't be ignored. Absolutely. It absolutely cannot be ignored. Last night, there were many emergency rallies once the raid of Al-Shifa Hospital started, because it's very clear what who the victims are. I mean, Al-Shifa Hospital didn't just have patients. It had over 5,000 civilians who had been displaced from their homes and were taking shelter. And uh, the Israeli occupation forces went in there and they put people into a courtyard in the middle of the rain. There's reports that they're making people take off their clothes for interrogations and searches. They bombed warehouses that had the very few medical supplies they may be left. They're trying to get the doctors to leave. They're trying to impose these scare tactics on people who have nowhere else to go because they've been bombed out of every other place of shelter. And this is something that the public cannot actually accept. There's just no way that they can accept a narrative that this is somehow a legitimate military target. And so for the past weeks, for the past days, the movement for Palestine has only been growing. In a sense, the total attempt to control the narrative has been completely backfiring because of how obvious it is, how obvious it is that the White House is not only lying, but it's actually working in tandem with the Israeli project, with the Israeli forces. It is, in a sense, orchestrating this genocide that is happening in front of our eyes. I mean, last night was proof. Yesterday was proof. The White House says Hamas is operating out of a hospital. A few hours later, Israeli uh, siege on the hospital is happening. I mean, you can't, this is no longer something that we can ignore, and, and the public is not going to accept it. The polls are showing it as well. There's never been lower support for Israel among the American public before. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. There's one element that I want to highlight here when, as we get started. The pro-Israeli war party, and that's what it is, the people who don't want to ceasefire, who want to keep bombing and killing civilians, they say this is a struggle between Hamas, a terrorist organization, which is carrying out unprovoked attacks against Jews. And this is a pogrom against Jewish people, similar to what happened to the Jewish population in Europe during the fascist period, 1933 to 1945. That's the line. And you see supporters of Israel, you know, sometimes crying and saying, oh, I feel unsafe now because people are standing with Palestine. It's not just Palestinians who are out in the streets. And it's not only Americans who are sympathetic to the Palestinians. It's large numbers of Jewish people in the United States and around the world are saying no to the Israeli government's genocide. I mean, here in New York City, Grand Central Station, taken over by Jewish Voices for Peace. There are Jewish protests, Jewish-led protests everywhere. Again, the media may want to provide the narrative Jews versus Arabs, Jews versus Muslims, terrorists versus Israel. More and more Jewish Americans, at least, don't want to identify with apartheid, don't want to identify with genocide, and they're standing up from my point of view, that means that the end is coming in terms of the domination of this narrative, even if they still have the corporate mainstream media echoing the propaganda. I think you're right, because in particular, who would want to be used as justification for a genocide? Even the Jewish people who may have family in Israel don't want to be used as the reason, as the name for this genocide that's happening, that the whole world is rising up against. People are really shifting. And I, I think you're right. 
the fact is, or the matter is, is that the pro-war narrative, the pro-Israel narrative has all the money, has all of the richest institutions behind it. And after October 7, it put everything to try to repress and to make sure that it was the only narrative that was dominating. You saw so many reports of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy and other think tanks immediately started making comparisons to 9-11, saying this was worse than 9-11, this was 10 9-11s, all sorts of stuff to try to really manipulate the American public and the world as a whole to just not be able to speak up. And they failed. In a matter of weeks, it has completely shifted. They are now on the defensive. And they have to keep on justifying and explaining their own actions, minimizing their own actions, trying to manufacture new data or without even real data. Netanyahu is now saying that he won't say how many civilians died, but he's saying it's not so many. There's no real, they're on the defensive. And this is a really big marker. I do think that it's marking a shift, a change. Israel is not going to be able to rely on popular support that it's relied on. I don't think popular, but kind of manufactured support that the White House media institutions have managed to orchestrate for it for the past decades. Things are changing for sure. Well, we have a NBC clip uh, interview with Benjamin Netanyahu, the head of state of Israel. Now, Netanyahu has been treated with kid gloves for a long time. His current government is made up of far right Jewish white supremacists. And masses of people prior to October 7th in Israel were protesting against Netanyahu. That protest movement has basically ended right now. But Netanyahu, even during the Obama era, he was invited to speak to Congress. He spoke before both houses of Congress as if almost like the State of the Union address. And he attacked the sitting president of the United States at that time, President Barack Obama, who was pursuing a negotiation for the so-called Iran nuclear deal, which Trump then ripped up when he came into office. But Netanyahu was there in front of Congress trashing President Obama's primary foreign policy initiative, and yet he was getting standing ovations. So but Netanyahu has been treated with kid gloves, really kid gloves, no matter what he does, by the U.S. media. Now, let's listen to this NBC interview because it speaks to what you're saying. Even the mainstream media, even the apologists, the historical apologists for Israel, because of the pressure from below and the horrific images that no one can deny, the tone is changing. I, I want to have our listeners and, and people watching this show actually watch this because it's quite different. A number of the protesters are protesting the actions by Israel, even the Secretary of State saying, quote, far too many Palestinian civilians have been killed. Let me ask you this. How many civilian deaths are you willing to bear in order to achieve your ultimate goal of eradicating Hamas? If I had my way, there wouldn't be a single civilian death. If I had my way, no civilians would be killed. If Israel had its way and our calls would be heeded, they'll all be out of harm's way. And in fact, I'm saying this uh, luckily now, uh, unfortunately, uh, hundreds of thousands have moved out of harm's way heeding our calls and uh, overcoming uh, Hamas's uh, threats at them at gunpoint, not to you, leave the zone. Do you of know violence. how many civilians have uh, been I killed, think, uh, Mr. Prime Minister? Do you know how many civilians have been killed? Do you have an accounting of the number? I wouldn't trust the Hamas numbers. When you say Gazan officials, that's Hamas officials. What's that's your what number? What's ISIS your officials number? It, it's lower than theirs. And what is most important, Kirsten, is that we see uh, a steady decline in the number of civilian deaths as we uh, our ground action proceeds, because basically people understand that they have to clear the way and they leave. But you have to do everything in your power to lay the blame for the civilian casualties uh, on where it belongs on Hamas. We don't want to make human shields an effective strategy for terrorists. I don't think Netanyahu's had that kind of an experience on an American TV station. I don't think so. There's a lot to unpack here. That's a really, really interesting interview to actually watch in its full but really a very interesting sign, the way she even framed the question in the beginning, how many civilian deaths are you willing to accept? Already she's pushing him. She's operating off of the premise that there's already too much. And his response is absolutely absurd. I mean, he's saying that there's a decline in civilian deaths, that he wishes there were none. And then he says, almost to, to remind her of her job, he says, 
It's your job to make sure the blame is laid on the correct body, which is Hamas. He's trying. It's almost as if he's saying, he's "Hey, he's, what are you doing well, here?" Where am I? I'm not supposed. To, you're not. You're the American <laughs> capitalist media. You're not supposed to say things like this to me. And you can actually. T- I watched that interview uh, a little bit ago, and it's funny because it's almost as if he's really frustrated with the U.S. Because in, he starts off in the beginning earlier. When they they ask, how long is it going to take? How long is it going to take for your so-called victory for you to eradicate Hamas? And he's like, well, not as long as it took you to eradicate ISIS. It's not going to take that long. He's kind of uh, jabbing at the United States, trying to provoke it in a sense, remind the the U.S. of its duty towards Israel. He's really been kind of lashing out after Macron said, called for a ceasefire. He immediately responded reminding France, saying, well, by the way, the terrorist attacks that are happening to us could happen to you at any moment. It's almost like a veiled threat trying to remind the West that they need to be behind this kind of um, anti-terrorism flag that they all bear against the axis of evil, as they say. He says in the in the interview also, he uses the phrase sheer evil, which is exactly the same words that Biden used, reminding people of their so-called unity behind this effort to suppress the resistance in particular in the Arab world, and uh, they're not towing the line enough. He's panicking. He's in a really bad position. Yeah, I agree with you. I really agree with you. And I want to talk with you about where American allies are going right now, because I don't mean the allies in the global south, which are largely dependent on the U.S., but countries like Canada, like France. Of course, Britain is going to be always the, the puppy dog for U.S. imperialism. But some of the other countries, because there's mass protests where they are. Trudeau, the Canadian prime minister, was interrupted even yesterday while he was having dinner. There are protests everywhere. I want to talk about that. But before I do, I want to just focus and help our audience understand what it means when the capitalist imperial media, the media that's really loyal to the United States, loyal to Israel, loyal to the military industrial complex, when they start to have sort of the beginning of what appears to be like an oppositional tone to U.S. policy, it's a reflection of a division within the U.S. ruling class. The media is the ruling class. So if you're starting to see some contrary point of view, that means there's a fight going on behind closed doors, in the boardrooms or in the suites. We know lots of people in Congress, staff aides are signing petitions. When I was a teenager during Vietnam, you know, what you're seeing, what we're seeing every day in, in Gaza, this horrific thing, we watch that every day in the United States, except it was Americans, young people who were going to go be sent to fight and die. So in American families, like at, when I was 12 or 13 or 14 or 15, each year as I got closer to 18 and I was going to be drafted, as were my siblings, we were talking about, are we going to go there? Are we going to, you know, and then the media started showing how horrific the war was. And in 1968, Walter Cronkite, who was the premier sort of newsman for America, said, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. That meant all of this suffering and carnage and horror was for nothing because the U.S. was going to lose. And that's when we had this explosion of anti-war sentiment, where instead of it being kind of a militant minority, it became a huge majority of Americans. And that became a factor in U.S. politics. So there's this kind of intersection between consciousness, media coverage, what's happening in the military, the actual what's going on on the ground. I feel that that interview on NBC and some of the other indicators that we have show that sectors of the U.S. ruling class know that being completely tied to Netanyahu and Israel right now is not only bad, it's a losing cause for the U.S. government. And as the dominant empire in the world, that's not unimportant. Absolutely. I mean, I think that in some sectors, Israel is being seen as a liability. I mean, the U.S. has suffered a lot of failures in its agenda, in particular in the Arab region and in Western Asia. I mean, they failed after 20 years of an operation in Afghanistan. Iraq is not really looking like a success in their eyes either. And this latest Israeli war on Gaza is not only a war on Gaza, it's also there's other fronts that are opening up and the U.S. is having to get involved. I mean, there's been small, but it's significant that there's been attacks on U.S. bases across the region as well. And so the United States has to look at this very carefully. Do they want to ally themselves with really what looks like a lose-lose situation? Netanyahu has basically declared that the only definition of victory is the full eradication of Hamas. 
And to eradicate Hamas, which is not simply just one small military organization, it is a, elected to power in Gaza. There is, it's not only Hamas who is fighting for the Palestinian cause. There are many different factors and sectors across society that are resisting in different ways. So to even say that this is a war on Hamas is incorrect. Inside Israeli society as well, there's ruptures, there's breaks. People don't want to do this. Like you said, in Vietnam, the difference here was that it was the American people that were going to be sent to sacrifice themselves for a losing battle. And in, in Israel, it's looking the same way. I mean, it's a very militarized society. Every single young person has to join the military. Their boots on the ground are all conscripts. So they're people who are you know, going about their daily lives and suddenly they have to go fight. They don't want to do this going forward. There's a lot of pressure coming from many different directions. And Netanyahu was already on thin ice. And every time he's on thin ice, he starts some sort of war so that he can get reelected again. He gives the Israeli public no choice. And he's dragging the U.S. into this losing game. I think it's a matter of time until the splits in the ruling class get deeper. Because why would the United States, who's already suffered so many losses in the region, want to tie themselves again to a sinking ship? Yeah. Really important for everybody who's watching this show or listening to this show to really think about this. During the Iraq invasion, which was also premised on lies, that Iraq was this mortal danger, weapons of mass destruction, and there was this mass movement. As a leader of the Answer Coalition, I was helping to organize it, and we had hundreds of thousands of people coming out every, sort of every month in mass demonstrations. And then the Bush administration kind of rushed to the war on March 19, 2003, and they had this huge offensive against the Iraqi government. And in three weeks, by August 9th of 2003, the Saddam government fled. So in three weeks, this sort of victory was achieved for the United States. And then Bush could get on that aircraft carrier, the Abraham Lincoln, which was actually in the harbor in San Diego. But he got on and pretended he was a great war hero and wore his bombardier jacket and said, mission accomplished, which of course was not true because the resistance was just beginning. But my point is they ended it in three weeks. And then Bush looked like, you know, he was in the saddle. The anti-war movement had been defeated because the U.S. won. But if a war goes on and on and on and there's no military victory, then public opinion, which is generally speaking mortified about war, mortified about the carnage, certainly mortified about killing all of these civilians, it starts to turn. And then once it starts to turn, it usually doesn't turn back. So it seems to me that we are at one of those moments. Unless the Israelis can actually achieve something militarily and defeat, quote, Hamas, or drive everybody out of Gaza, if the only thing they can do is keep killing kids every day, and one out of every 200 people in Gaza is now dead, one out of every 200, then the world is going to keep turning. The world's going to keep turning. In other words, the U.S., the U.S. government doesn't really care that much about Israel or Jews or Muslims or Christians or people. The U.S. government cares about its geostrategic standing. And if this war keeps going and there's no victory, no military victory over Hamas, I think Israel's goose is cooked. And I think the U.S. will tend to move away from Netanyahu, certainly. Absolutely. And I think it's actually interesting to look at the very brief history of the U.S. and Israeli alliance. The U.S. wasn't automatically unconditionally behind Israel until 1967, actually. It wasn't really all the way in. It was still kind of weighing its options. It was considering the playing field. It's not kind of this there's a narrative that people would like to think is true, that the U.S. stands behind Israel because it's a moral position. It's not. It's a calculation. And from the very beginning, the U.S. tied itself to Israel because it was advantageous for its imperialist agenda in the region. Israel was a watchdog for it, in a sense. Sending equipment, military equipment and weapons to Israel is basically like arming themselves. They're so... It's, a projection it's, of American exactly. power. Yeah. Absolutely. It's almost like a big American military base in the middle of a region that they're struggling to control and never actually have been able to dominate fully. And if that's not going to be feasible anymore, if that's not successful, there's no reason for the United States to keep on tying itself to it. It's always been a calculation. It's not actually some sort of commitment that comes out of some sort of moral or ethical or ideological position. It's, the U.S. is always calculating. 
And what you said earlier, I think, is also important to emphasize. The military victory is going to be very difficult for them to achieve, partly because of their own military approach. If you look at the the actual strategies of the Israeli military and army and, and the way that they actually carry out war, they've tied their own military practice to the complete destruction of civilian infrastructure and of civilians. That's actually, they have many, you can read documents that this is their approach because their targets are actually never really militaries. They're always going against occupied people or a civilian population. And when they've said it, it's called the Dahia Doctrine. It came out in 2006 when they were doing a very similar kind of all, you know, destroying as much as possible aerial bombardment on Lebanon to defeat Hezbollah, which they failed. They talked about this doctrine that they have called the Dahia Doctrine, saying that the only way to control someone like Nasrallah is to bomb all of the civilian society in which Hezbollah is embedded. And if they tie themselves to that, the only way they can achieve victory in Gaza, for example, is to keep on bombing civilians. And it's like a circle because nobody is supporting it. They are becoming more and more isolated. There's just no way to defend it anymore. It's really not looking good for the Zionists in the near future. It's interesting what you're saying that, you know, if you think back just to the last 20 years, there was Of course, there was the 2002 Israeli reinvasion of the West Bank, the Janine massacre. Then in 2006, the Israelis go to war in Lebanon. And basically, even though they dropped a lot of personnel, anti-personnel weapons, cluster bombs, killed a lot of people, they didn't win the war. Then there was the Gaza war in 2008. Then there was the Gaza war in 2014. There was Gaza war in 2021. So Israel is constantly at war either with Palestinians or with its neighbors. And it routinely bombs Syria, just routinely carries out bombing strikes. So you have a government which is not, like peace is an interlude and usually a very short interlude before the next conflict. And so Israel does this thing all the time. And as a consequence, the people in the region know all about how Israel is. That's why the Arab world isn't really friendly. The Arab street isn't friendly, isn't going to be friendly to Israel. Even the normalization process with Saudi Arabia and the others that that was trying to be sort of engineered behind the scenes, that can't happen now because there's so much hatred and anger in the street in the Arab world and generally speaking in the Muslim world. So they can't do that. But as long as the U.S. is attached to that project of endless war, that means the U.S. can't really escape the clutches of its allies. Sometimes your allies can be a bigger problem for you than anything. And I'm saying that, Leanne, because in 2011, President Obama, who I think was conceptualizing a new sort of strategy for the U.S., a new geostrategic strategy, said we have to pivot towards Asia. And a lot of people didn't know what that meant at the time, but pivot to Asia for the U.S. meant let's not stay bogged down in endless war in the Middle East, because that's what Iraq was doing, or Afghanistan and South Asia, or Libya, or Syria. The U.S. was bogged down. And what was happening? China was rising. China was developing economically, becoming a bigger and bigger major force. Russia was back on its feet after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So Obama geostrategically saying, let's not be in endless war in the Middle East, wars we can't actually win. Let's go and confront the bigger problem that we have, the bigger challenge to our empire, which is a rising China. So there was an attempt to kind of escape endless war in the Middle East. But tying the United States to Israel means you're tied to endless war in the Middle East. So you keep being bogged down in the Middle East. You can't really pivot to Asia if you're stuck. And I'd say Netanyahu is stuck. And Biden, I mean, Biden was basically, it was a love fest with Netanyahu. He said, there will not be a ceasefire. The media said, is there a possibility? No possibility. So Biden is stuck. He owns this now. But the U.S. is bogged down. This is a big geostrategic problem, and big sectors of the ruling class in America know it's a problem. That's why I think we're starting to witness the beginning of this sort of fissure, fracture, cleavage, as evidenced by some of the mainstream media coverage of Netanyahu. 
absolutely on point analysis. You know, Israel has never not been at war. It's the whole identity of the Israeli project. During that time of the pivot to Asia, you saw Netanyahu and the Israeli administration getting frustrated with the mm. United States, really upset. Like, why can't we push more? We need to go destroy Iran. We need to go threaten Iran. There was a push for war with Iran at the time, trying to drag the U.S. into that as well. There's just been no, I think, concept of peace in the Israeli self-definition. It has to have this kind of, we're on the defense, we need to defend ourselves in order to justify its own existence in the region the way it's existing now. Yeah, okay. so like when you think about what Netanyahu did with the Iran nuclear deal, you're absolutely right. He was worried that Obama was going to actually pivot to Asia what was Obama really doing, everybody? He was signing a peace deal with Iran to end the U.S. conflict with Iran that began with the Iranian Revolution in 1979. The Iranian Revolution overthrew the Shah, who had been put into on the throne by the CIA in a coup in 1953. He was there for 26 years. A people's revolution overthrew the Shah. And then the U.S. broke all relations with the Iranian government, not because it was a dictatorship, because the U.S. had just supported a dictatorship, but because they were going to be independent. So Obama finally sort of spent almost all of his political capital to get that arms, the nuclear deal with Iran, because he was actually part of the ruling class thinkers who said time to pivot to Asia, mm -hmm. meaning to confront China. Mm -hmm. And Netanyahu freaked out. That's why when he came to the U.S. Congress, he was denouncing Obama. He wanted the Republicans and the naysayers to break up the nuclear deal because he was afraid if the U.S. pivots to Asia, it's going to mean actually bad things for Israel, meaning Israel will become additionally isolated or at least unimportant or less important for U.S. imperialism. Yep, absolutely. The Israeli state is completely dependent on the United States. If the United States looks like it's moving its priorities to another horizon, to another another version of endless war, because I don't think we can say that the United States is saying, okay, time to move to a more peaceful way of doing foreign policy. No, they're shifting. They're shifting to a new assessment of what the enemy is for United States imperialism. And they're kind of saying, you know, Israel, your priorities are not necessarily the same priorities that we have. We're not really that invested in the project of greater Israel that is still not completed as Netanyahu and the Israeli settler society thinks it is. So I think it's really important to watch and track. Let me just ask you real quick, part of the issue for the U.S., it's the dominant power, but it needs allies. Yeah. And you look at what happened with some of the statements from Macron in France, Trudeau yesterday in Canada, the Indonesian head of state was visiting with Biden and Biden said, well, we had a real, I mean, Biden can hardly talk, but he tried to get out the words. We had a good talk about the climate. Prime Minister, what's your comments? And the prime minister said, thank you, President Biden. It's time for a ceasefire. The Gaza war can't keep going. The suffering is so terrible. Thank you very much. And Biden is just like looking like a deer in front of the, the headlights, completely surprised, completely taken off guard. But this is where it's going. Like, the rest of the world wants it to end. The only reason it's not ending is Netanyahu can't figure out how to end it without losing. And Biden is stuck. He's stuck because of this open, full, complete embrace of Netanyahu. So let's just talk about where the U.S. now stands with its allies. Yeah, well, the Indonesian prime minister's surprise call for a ceasefire on Biden was really great. And we can't deny there were two million people on the Indonesian street out on November 4 in support of a ceasefire. So really, the pressure is coming from the bottom and is coming very strongly. Biden is completely backed into a corner. He's completely, because of his complete embrace of Netanyahu, as you said, he can't respond. There's no way for him to turn that's actually going to help him save face. Undercover, as this whole thing is unfolding, maybe Blinken is starting to change his tune a little bit. He's starting to say that there's too many civilian deaths, but the U.S. is still sending weapons to Israel in larger and larger numbers. They've just approved another $14 billion aid package, military aid package to Israel. There's been over 120 planes and many ships and thousands of tons of weapons that have been delivered to Israel in the past couple of weeks. I mean, the United States is still tied very concretely to the Israeli project, and they, they've been making calls to Netanyahu. They've been trying to tell him to show restraint. They've been trying to see if they can maneuver some way out of this, but it's really not looking like it's possible. 
in the meantime, the pressure from the streets around the world is really rising. There's over 30 countries now that have broken relations with Israel in the past weeks. That's extremely significant. And the fact that Macron, one of the biggest allies of France, is one of the biggest allies of not just the U.S., but the U.S. war project. They've always been on board. Macron went out and said, it's time for a ceasefire. We need a ceasefire. We can't have all the civilian deaths anymore. Some sectors of French society, which is a very polarized society, in particular around the question of Islamophobia and terrorism and calling, you know, all Arabs and Muslims in, in France as threats or terrorists. We can see this in the French policies and, and the ways in which they treat immigrants. There was a, the sector of society that went out and called Macron as terrorist sympathizer, but much larger sector of society that's been pushing him, just like we were seeing in, in the United States and in other countries. So Biden is becoming isolated just like Netanyahu is becoming isolated by his allies and also by the people who voted for him. I mean, people don't want to vote for him anymore. His well, the, own party. Well, the Arab American population certainly doesn't. No. I mean, when when we were at that rally on November fourth, the top official of CARE, the Council of American Islamic Relations, he got up and said, "We're not going to vote for him in Michigan. We're not going to vote for him in Minnesota. We're not." Well, the Arab American vote, like in in Michigan, there's two hundred thousand Arab American voters. I mean, Michigan is a was narrowly won by Biden. Those people are not going to vote for him. You know, Genocide Joe is the sort of common and popular slogan now. And a lot of young people, you know, when you think about the public perception of young people, not just Arabs, but young people in general, like they're against what the U.S. is doing. They're against what Biden is doing. They're mortified. I mean, Biden is already a pretty disgusting candidate. I mean, the only reason he wanted, nobody voted for Biden in 2020 because they were thinking a year ahead of time, I only wish Joe Biden could become president. No, they were afraid of Donald Trump because Trump is so right wing. So they voted for Biden because maybe it would be a way of stopping Trump. And Biden narrowly won. Now, after four years or three years, 13% of the population of voters say that they are better off than they were in 2021 when Biden took office. So very dismal domestic approval ratings. Inflation has really hurt people. And then you have young people and young black people in particular, another important base for the Democratic Party and a really important voter base that helped Biden succeed against Trump. They're either really angry and opposed to the policy of embrace of genocide, or they're certainly not enthused any longer. I feel Biden is toast. I don't think Biden can possibly win. And I think this is kind of the, the dominant reason right now why he won't win. Absolutely. Actually, in the, the speech given by the head of care on November 4, ended in chants saying, in November, we will remember. In November, we will remember. I mean, people are going to remember when election season comes around. Did Biden really represent anything that they have any confidence in? And like you said, it's possible that not everyone is, you know, calling for the end of the occupation yet, where this is a huge shift. It's not going to happen overnight in U.S. Mm -hmm. public consciousness. But people at least want to see the United States as some sort of neutral observer. And the U.S. has managed to deceive people and, and kind of pose as that at different moments in history, saying we are, you know, we're neutral, we're, we're helping mediate, we're helping to create peace in the Middle East. This is a phrase that's used a lot. But right now, there's no hiding the complete lack of neutrality of the White House and the complete complicity of the of the genocide that's happening right now. And I think Biden's made a lot of missteps. I think the White House has also made a lot of bad assessments because, like you said, young people, not just Palestinians, not just Arabs, who definitely have very concrete reasons to no longer want to vote for Biden, but young people who went through the pandemic, young people who went through the uprisings after the assassination of George Floyd and were repressed by a lot of the same tactics that the Israeli military has trained many police forces in the United States in crowd repression tactics. Mm -hmm. There's actual training programs between the police and the IDF and uh, young people have experienced that directly. There's no way that they're going to suddenly accept U.S. complicity in the genocide against the Palestinian people. They've made a misstep. They think that they can control the narrative when people have concrete political experiences that are going to change their opinions. It's not just a question of discourse. When you have people who have been suffering from police brutality for decades 
And then on top of it, the kind of neglect of the U.S. state during the pandemic that we saw, over one million people dead, the economy was totally not protecting the working and the lower classes in any way. People are no longer going to have confidence in the system that is saying right now that Israel is on the defense. It's really a broken strategy and it's failing in its efficacy. Yeah, when you think about the death toll in Gaza, now we don't really know the death toll. The Gaza Health Ministry is putting out numbers, which Biden sort of callously, cynically, in a most vulgar way said, we don't really know what the death count is because the Ministry of Health is controlled by Hamas. Well, yeah, Hamas was the elected government of Mm -hmm. Gaza. So yeah, the health ministry. But there's no denying that these people are dead. The only thing is there might be many, many more dead because bombing apartment buildings, there's a lot of people in that rubble who we're not gonna find their bodies for months. So the numbers that we're thinking about, the numbers that we know are, as of yesterday, I think 11,200 or something like that. And again, I had mentioned that was one out of every 200 people. Now that's 0.5%, right? That's 0.5%. If the number goes to 21,000 or 22,000, that would be 1%. So let's just look at these numbers. So Because it's hard to like, what does 1% mean? Well, the American population is 330 million people. So what's 10%? Well, that's 30 million. What's 1%? That's 3 million. What's a half a percent? What's one out of 200? That's 1.5 million people. Hey, Americans, if we had in this country 1.5 million people in the United States killed in the last five weeks because a foreign country was bombing apartment buildings, bombing hospitals, it wouldn't matter what organizations were destroyed. If you do this to a people, which is genocidal, when you kill, for Americans, the number would be 1.5 million if it was an equivalent number, one half of 1%. Well, what happens to the people who suffered that? They're gonna fight. They're not gonna think, oh, gee whiz, my family got wiped out. I hope I get over it. No, they're gonna wanna take up arms. They're gonna wanna fight. The siblings who lost a brother or a sister in that rubble, what are they gonna wanna do? They're gonna wanna fight. You could wipe Hamas off the face of the map. I don't think they can, but let's say you did. What about all those people? What about the, that huge part of the population that just lost somebody because an apartheid regime decided to destroy their apartment building? Those people are going to fight, and they're going to fight and fight and fight. They're not going to stop fighting. Killing this number of people is not a winning strategy. The only way it would win is if you want to drop a nuclear bomb on Gaza, which some of the Israeli military says they're perfectly happy to do. Or yesterday in that disgusting pro-war demonstration in Washington where people were like, yeah, let's flatten Gaza. Those are genocidal thoughts, right, to flatten Gaza. Yeah, maybe if you kill two million people, wipe them all out, kill every one of them. Maybe you win then. But they, Israelis can't do that. Even right now, with as terrible as this is, the world is rising up. The world's going to rise up this Friday on November 17th. And it's gonna keep going. So the Israelis can't do that. They can't have a 100% genocide. So the idea that there's a military solution for Israel, that's a fantasy. The idea that the United States government and Biden administration is asking American taxpayers to fund genocide because ultimately it will win. People are, one, they're gonna be morally repulsed. And two, nobody believes that. Anybody who has a brain is gonna think, Those people in Gaza, the next generations are going to keep fighting until occupation ends. Absolutely. I mean, and the numbers are, if anything, lower, like you said, lower than what they actually are. And that doesn't count the number of people who've been very seriously wounded and the millions who have nowhere to live anymore because of the complete destruction of residential areas. There's images now and we're hearing about families who are putting different color strings on their children and on themselves, on their wrists, so that if a bombing does happen, they can recognize the body parts. And children are living in this. And there's actually nothing new. Children have been, there's no child in Gaza who hasn't experienced a bombing. There's been bombs, I can't even count the number of times. It's not just the every two years, the official wars, it's constant. And you can't actually think that this is what you can subject a society to 
And then suddenly they're going to just accept that uh, maybe, you know, they eradicate Hamas and install a new regime. There's been talk about bringing in a third party, an international force to govern Gaza. I mean, so what? It's not going to stop the Palestinian resistance. It's not just Hamas that's fighting either. It's all sectors of society. And, and if you look at history, there's been no moment where even just the complete asymmetrical use of force, the United States has done it in Vietnam, they failed. They did it in across the Middle East, they failed. It doesn't matter how much stronger, how much exponentially more powerful the military might is, when you're going against people who have a real reason to be fighting, who are under occupation, who are part of a liberation struggle, it's not that simple. People expected Israel to go into Gaza and come out. It sounds simple. Come in with U.S. military equipment, the best, most advanced military equipment in the world, and eradicate a military force that's operating with homemade weapons, homemade equipment, operating under tunnels that supposedly Israel says they've already destroyed in the previous bombardments that they've done. And it turns out that actually they can't. The will of the people is much stronger. And the experience, the accumulated experience of the Palestinian resistance is actually very, very significant. They really are, have a strategy that is keeping the Israeli offensive at bay and is causing a lot of Israeli losses, although they're not really reporting this in the U.S. and Israeli media as much as perhaps the reality is. Yeah, the Palestinian people, their ability to keep fighting, even though they've been made refugees for 75 years, is the actual element that retains national identity. You know, when you think about a people or a nation, however one wants to describe it, it's usually associated with the land. It's our land, it's the land, it's where our ancestors lived, it's where our homes are. So consciousness and culture shapes around land. But now you've had for 75 years, one dispossession after another, where sector after sector after sector of the Palestinian people are driven into refugee status. So there's refugee camps all over the place. And millions of Palestinians have been made refugees, and millions of Palestinians still identify as Palestine. They still say, we want the right to return from the homes and villages from which we've been expelled. And so this concept of nationhood or peoplehood is retained even with the loss of land. Even in Gaza, the people are refugees from earlier expulsions, all of them. Mm -hmm. So you have a situation where over 75 years, the Palestinian people have, through their steadfastness, their resilience, even with the diaspora, with spreading around people being expelled, they keep fighting. And as long as they keep fighting, Palestine lives. It's actually the struggle that makes Palestine live, not simply the land at this point. It's this ongoing, enduring struggle. And then you have Lebanon, you have Iraq, you have Syria, you have, of course, Egypt, which formed a strategic partnership with the Israelis in 1979 with the signing of the Camp David Agreement, which took the largest Arab army out of the conflict, which allowed Israel then to invade Lebanon in 1982 and do the rest. But still, there's the Egyptian people. Aside from the governments, the masses of people, they are inspired by the Palestinians. They feel this struggle. So at a certain point, if this does not resolve and resolve sometime soon with a ceasefire, the likelihood is that there's going to be growing pressure on the governments of those neighboring countries to join the fray, to come in. And, and right now, I, you can see by the statements of the Hezbollah leadership and some of the Iranian leadership, some of those governments are trying to refrain from having a regional war because they think it will be actually used or manipulated by the U.S. and Israel to sort of change the subject from the Israeli genocide against the people of Gaza. But it also means they probably are feeling the Israelis are not going to succeed in Gaza. And if they were about to succeed, then I think the probability of regional war would become quite real. Anyway, as we move towards the finish here, I want to get your assessment, because you pay careful attention to the region, to Lebanon, Iraq, Syria, and of course, watching events from a distance with Iran. I want to get your, your take on that. Yeah, I think... It was really important to see Nasrallah's speech. Now it's a little over a week ago. And he's the leader of Hezbollah. The leader of Hezbollah. 
A lot of people had a lot of speculation about what he was going to say. Because of the mood in the region, the fact that the Palestinian cause is so unifying for the Arab and North African people across the region, it's something that despite what the governments claim or do, the small inches that have been made towards normalization with Israel, the masses of people are firmly in support of the Palestinian cause and they have been throughout history. It's been something that has not only been part of the Palestinian national identity, but perhaps also the Arab identity to identify with the Palestinian liberation struggle. It is in a sense almost that kind of anchoring, the anchoring feeling, the anchoring sentiment that creates unity in the region despite the government maneuvers and, and shifting. A lot of people thought, okay, all the regional governments are going to just come right in and join the fray because of that kind of pressure. And we see that actually Nasrallah was a little bit more strategic about that. I think you're right that what his, what his assessment is, is if a regional war breaks out unnecessarily, it's going to be an opening for the United States, which still has the greatest military power, which still has many bases across the region to try to reassert control in certain areas. And so, but it's also very true that forces across the region are watching very carefully. There's been a lot of exchange of fire on the border with Lebanon, the northern front, that's causing issues for Israel. It's keeping it occupied in two different places. Um, and a lot of the Israelis who live in that area have been moved out. Absolutely. Been There's a big population shift going on. Mm -hmm. They've been evacuated from the territories that they took illegally already. The border with Lebanon has been contested. There's parts of Lebanon that are under Israeli occupation on and off. And until now, parts of the southern farming land are under Israeli occupation. So there's been activity on that front, which is complicating things for Israel, that's keeping it occupied at the northern border, not allowing it to put all of its efforts on the invasion of Gaza. And Yemen has also threatened Israel by showing that it has the capability to send missiles from Yemen all the way to Tel Aviv and has said that they're willing to do that if things continue the way they're continuing. So all eyes are on Gaza. I think what Nasrallah said, he said, all options are on the table. It seems that Israel and the United States are taking that very seriously because after his speech, they did escalate in many different ways. The U.S. is sending more weapons. There's been more attempts to control the narrative. So things are really kind of every moment the correlation of forces shifts. Um, the situation is really, really dynamic. But Israel has lost before to Hezbollah and they will likely lose in this. It's looking more and more like they will lose in Gaza. They will not achieve the victory as they have defined it. They are only able to massacre civilians, like we've been saying throughout the show. They're not able to actually defeat military targets as they've defined them. And they lost in, in Lebanon in 2006. So there's really not much opening for them right now. They're either going to have to redefine what victory means for them. They're going to have to try to mediate some sort of solution. Or they're, gonna, they're going to lose. And what happens after that is something that we should really think about. The Palestinian cause is not just in name, it's not symbolic. People are actually fighting. People want to see the end of the occupation. And this is a shift in, in history right now. For a long time, it felt like Israel had all of the power. It was very difficult to actually make advances to it. But there is an actual struggle against the Israeli occupation that has made advances. And so things could look different in a couple of weeks. The question of the Palestinian state is back on the table in a much more real way than it has been in the past decade. Yeah. Every war has a beginning. And with the exception, perhaps, of Korea, every war has an end. And this war will end. And the question is, how will it end? Will Hamas be defeated and Netanyahu and the Israelis claim victory and they drive the people of Gaza out of Gaza? and they put it completely under Israeli control, and then what? There's going to be some prolonged peace? That's, it doesn't seem like a possibility to me. That's one option, though. Let's talk about that as one option. The second option is that the Israelis are compelled to have a ceasefire. They haven't destroyed Hamas. Hamas is actually in a stronger position in spite of the tremendous loss of life and suffering and infrastructure loss because the Israelis won't have succeeded. Internally in Israel, the longer the war goes, the pressure is going to become greater and greater. A large part of the Israeli population feels Netanyahu should not be the leader of the country. They blame Netanyahu for the failure to protect the population on October 7th. 
and the sort of heavy-handed reaction immediately afterwards, which I think resulted in killing a lot of Israeli citizens. You know, we're hearing reports of many large numbers of people leaving Israel as a settler regime that started as basically a European project, but now has refugees or immigrants or people who have moved there from many parts of the world, including from Brooklyn, from the United States. If it's no longer a privileged apartheid state, people can leave. The whole momentum, when you look at the trajectory, I think Israel loses. We're not predictive, we don't have a crystal ball, but I don't see how they win. And if they don't win under these circumstances, then the issue of Palestinian statehood becomes primary after it's been negated for so many decades by the Israeli occupation. So we don't know exactly how, what form this takes, but the war will end. It needs to end sooner than later to save the lives of all of these poor, innocent civilians, half of whom are more than half our children. Anyway, just your last thoughts as we close out. How the war ends, what's the future look like? I said on a show a couple of weeks ago with Miko Peled, who was, you know, a son of an Israeli general. I said, how does it end? And he said, there's two ways, two paths. Democracy, where everybody lives as equals, or apartheid, meaning the continued existence of the apartheid supremacist occupation regime. Two options. Anyway, what are your thoughts? Well, first, I agree that we can't predict. We can't know for sure. But I think what is absolutely true is we already knew this, but now more and more people are knowing it because the situation itself is just proving it, that Israeli apartheid, Israeli occupation is not an inevitability. It's not invulnerable. It's not something that will exist forever. It's not something that existed for very long to begin with. And neither is the U.S. domination of the Arab and North African region. We're seeing everything crack at the seams now. And we're seeing, for, like you've so well said, that Israel has two options. It can either continue bombing civilians in the massive numbers and killing civilians in the massive numbers that it has been doing and lose and become more and more isolated on the world stage and possibly lose their number one. The only reason why they exist today is because of U.S. backing. Or they are going to have to come up with some sort of solution that would change the political situation dramatically and would no longer make it so that it's simply such a, you know, a small negotiation around perhaps how much authority they're giving to the Palestinian Authority to manage the occupied territories or not. The question of statehood will be back on the table. The question of the occupation will be back on the table. It will really remove many of the gains that the Israeli settler project has has achieved over the past couple of years. There's 700,000 settlers now in the occupied territories that will have to be dealt with, even if it's just a question of Israeli presence in the occupied territories themselves. There's going to be a lot of civil conflict within Israeli society. There's still, there is right now, like you said, people are tired of constantly fighting. People don't want to keep doing this. In fact, many people, like you said, are leaving Israel. It's interesting because one of the ways in which Israel got the population there in the first place was promising this kind of Western way of life that is premised on economic well-being and not active war. And less and less is that looking like the reality for Israelis. And so they're going to go back to Brooklyn. They're going to go back to Europe, those that can. There's also a lot of people that were brought over from African countries and other countries across the third world who have less options. But um, the whole premise of Israeli society and the Israeli project is cracking at this moment. So, you know, the way it's going to end, we'll have to see. But whatever does happen, there's no going back now. Not only has public opinion shifted around the question of Israeli occupation of Palestine, but the actual way in which Palestine is being dealt with at all levels, policy, geopolitical, social, media, has completely shifted and is going to change the way in which the region is understood, the way in which the United States engages with the region, and the, the negotiating power of the Palestinian people going forward. As much as there has been so much devastation, and it's almost impossible to describe what it means to actually look at your own people being massacred in this 
kind of numbers. And it's not just for Palestinians. People just seeing the imagery, it makes them think of their own children. It makes them think, what would it be like to have to tell my child every night, please wear this bracelet so that I can recognize your body parts, perhaps after the bomb falls on our, on our house. It's completely, un, you can't understand it. But at the same time as there is this huge feeling of devastation of the massive loss of life, the optimism for the future of the Palestinian struggle has never been stronger. People have, are seeing that the Palestinian resistance actually has made achievements. There is a change in the calculus of power and you know it's not inevitable that it continues forever. It's going to be called into question and what happens next, we'll have to see. But for sure, people are going to continue mobilizing on the ground in the United States. For sure, November 17 is going to be huge. The pressure on the U.S. government's funding of the Israeli project is only going to increase. And the more that there is this pressure from the bottom and from all sides, I think the more that we're going to see the favor being shifted for liberation, for an end to apartheid, and for an end to the genocidal project of occupation. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I think the situation has changed. I want to hold this up for people so that they can see it for themselves. That's Friday, November 17th. It's called Shutdown. People are going to be marching. They're going to be going on student strikes. The students in occupied Palestine have called for all the students of the region and the people of the world to, to do the same. There's going to be, I know shops are closing here in New York City, Arab-owned shops. It's going to be something unlike anything that's ever happened before. And I just want to invite all the people listening or watching the show, join that movement, become part of it, help make history, help free Palestine. Leanne, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. We'll see you on the streets. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.